I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In this episode, we discuss agricultural economics. How must agricultural production shift to be on a sustainable pathway? What does this mean for individual diets? And what policy levers can guide us towards this sustainable pathway? So hello and welcome to this episode of the Irish Economics Podcast and today I'm joined by Dr. Benjamin Budisky. So Benji, Benny is a researcher at the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research here in Germany. Uh, Benny has a background in economics and applies this to understand many topics associated with food demand, how land will be used in the future and how this should be managed in light of climate change. So many people might ask what's this got to do with economics? Well first of all Economics is about maximizing welfare with limited resources, and usually we think about these resources as money, but in this context, we might think about resources in terms of the global food and climate system. So how can we maximize human welfare while respecting the the limitations of these systems? Alongside this, we also need to create markets and policies to guide sustainable consumption, and that's another job for an economist, so hopefully we can delve into these topics today. So Benny, thanks very much for taking the time to speak today. Um, I know you're busy, and... You do a lot of work from a global perspective, so hopefully that's something that uh, we can that would be quite novel for listeners, especially Irish listeners. So the first thing that might be interesting to discuss is looking at uh, set, set the context in terms of global agriculture and global food demand, and you've done a lot of work in this context. Uh, so what exactly is the trajectory of global food demand if we maybe set aside climate impact for a second and just think about other other issues such as food security and and sustainability in different contexts that we need to worry about. Yeah, thanks for the invitation. Um, so where are we in terms of food demand? At the moment, um, uh, the world is undergoing something that we call the nutrition transition. So uh, we are seeing that people shift their diets worldwide, but not synchronous um, uh, from, uh, let's say, um, uh, low quality, low diversity diets Um, of poor people um, uh, which are characterized by um, uh, low calorie availability uh, food insecurity um, uh, um, uh, lack of nutrition um, uh, towards um, 
and yeah, these diets are shifting now towards uh, high income diets, and they are increasingly characterized by um, high higher diversity. Um, uh, more animal products, more fruits and vegetables. But when the income further increases, they are also characterized by too much, for example, too much of oil, too much of sugar, too much of alcohol, too much of animal products in terms of healthiness. Mm -hmm. And we've got a whole series of overnutrition-related diseases um, such as diabetes or stroke or cardiovascular diseases, which are also connected to this dietary shift. So we are basically shifting from uh, scarcity diets, which are not good, towards um, overnutrition diets, which are also not good. Okay, so regardless of any environmental concerns, we need to think more about our diet from a health perspective. Exactly. So health, uh, like diets are, I would say, the the number one global health risk um, far before, for example, accidents, traffic accidents or um, injuries or conflict. Um, uh, the number of people who suffer and die from uh, cardiovascular diseases, from cancers, all which are di- often diet related, are much higher than the, yeah, than those other Okay. Diseases. And so in terms of the, the dietary impl- implications, we need to shift more towards vegetable plant-based diets, less emphasis on those negative aspects that yeah. you mentioned. So in, in high-income countries, basically, you would try to reduce the amount of highly processed foods. You would try to increase your consumption of, um, of whole grains, uh, fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds. Um, uh, you would try to reduce your livestock consumption um, uh, and salt intake. Yeah, these are maybe the the major okay. transitions that would be needed in high income countries. Okay, and so we have this dietary need to shift before we come to climate aspects such as biodiversity. Would that be an issue? Would that be another motivating factor to maybe move towards more plant based diets? Yeah, exactly. So many environmental aspects go hand in hand with the health aspect, in particular reducing um, uh, livestock products. But maybe before I come to this, um, let's also have another perspective on this global food demand transition. The second part is we've got strongly increasing population growth and we also have an increasing food wastage in households. So um, people in rich countries waste approximately a third or quarter to a third or even more of the food they purchase in the supermarket. Um, uh, And um, the population is growing. The population is also aging and adults, of course, need more calories than young people. Mm -hmm. Finally, um, uh, people are also becoming increasingly overweight. But the largest driver of, um, because they consume too too many calories, all this goes into the direction of producing or demanding more food. Um, However, we can say that clearly the most important driver is population growth and um, uh, then kind of food waste, overweight and and demographic change are of less importance, but also promote this. Okay, Okay, so that's, I suppose, the baseline. And then we add in this climate layer on top. So if we keep going on the pathway that we're on at the moment, we're going to overstep what the, the climate system can support um, 
have you you've done some research on, on in this area? Could you maybe give us an idea as to well what will happen business as usual and what would happen if we want to respect what the climate can support? Yeah. So in terms of food demand, in the last 50 years, we have roughly doubled food uh, demand worldwide. And um, in the next coming 20 years until 
So um, we have to basically produce more food while at the same time reducing our environmental footprint compared to today. And that is, of course, a very large challenge mm. in particular because in agriculture you cannot produce anything without emissions because it's an open system. You always you need nutrients um, uh, for your crop production. You cannot substitute them. So you will always have some kind of leakage of nitrogen you will always have denitrification related to n2o emissions and so on sure okay so then so then that brings us on to the fact that okay well, we need to to change what we're doing in some way and one aspect of that is shifting our, 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 our diets so to what extent do we need to shift to get onto a sustainable pathway in aggregate at first? Yeah, so of course, um, sustainable pathway is always a balance between, um, uh, well, efforts in all times of sectors. So if you want to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, you need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from the industry, from the traffic, but also from agriculture. Um, so if you want to lower the total burden, every sector has to contribute. And this means in agriculture, also within agriculture, we have to balance the portfolio between, on the one hand, more efficient fertilization, um, protection of, of uh, pristine and secondary forests, um, build up of soil organic carbon and uh, well, uh, re-naturalization of wetlands and peat soils. Um, on the other hand, on the demand side, we need to cut the amount of food waste um, and we need to reduce the calories from animal uh, protein, uh, from animal sources. Mm. So this includes both meat, but also milk, dairy and, and eggs. Mm. And the, the, if we try to make sustainable scenarios, um, we find that like halving... Uh, um, uh, having livestock consumption um, in rich countries would be an aim um, uh, which would um, uh, yeah, allow us to get into sustainable um, production along, along of course with changes of management practices on the, on the production side. Okay, so the change is roughly half? Half or more, yeah. Half or more of our reduction in terms of our livestock meat-based products exactly this is actually also something that um, uh, nutritionalists uh, recommend okay. in terms of healthiness of the diet um, of course if you if you further reduce it that's even better i mean the, the, this is always a target and it's it's a, um, uh, difficult of course to operationalize and also to find there the right balance between production and demand side because sure. it's very difficult to to measure consumer rents yeah, half doesn't seem too outrageous for a lot of people. Well, in my perspective, anyway. But other people might, other people's opinions might differ. But I suppose these things are all interlinked. So, if if the target is to reduce your consumption by half, that that's conditional on all these other things happening as well. So, so you so for example, better management of lands. Uh, other land use management strategies need to be put in place also. But what happens if we're unsuccessful at, at these elements. Is there a range within which we might have to adjust our, our diets to compensate, or can we do something else in another field that means that well we we're, we don't have to reduce our diets by as much? Yeah, in terms of greenhouse gases, 
Um, well, the, the aim is to be uh, carbon neutral, and this is kind of also the cost optimal pathway mm -hmm. for the future to say we, are, we should be carbon neutral by 2050, um, which means that agriculture, which will con continuously still create emissions, has to be compensated for by removal of emissions in other sectors. So you have to actually uh, remove emissions, th for example, through afforestation or through improved soil management mm -hmm. to sustain the, the agricultural production system um, to still feed so many people. So this is a challenge already by itself. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and then, of course, in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, you could say, well, we we shift the burden so we we compensate even more emissions by and still allow for more consumption for example mm -hmm. um, uh, but of course these negative emissions which you get through afforestation or through bioenergy with carbon capture and sequestration they also come at um, uh, trade-offs right so you you need land for that you need um, you also increase the the food prices by that so we could of course reach the um, uh, reach carbon neutrality also with higher consumption but then um, the all sect all the other sectors would have to do much more in terms of other pollutants for example if we look at nitrogen pollution mm -hmm. i think it's not even possible to reach a sustainable um, target without a shift in diets. So we've seen that there in terms of nitrogen pollution, if you want to go, for example, below critical thresholds for groundwater pollution um, all around the world, then you actually, it's not sufficient to just improve the efficiency in the production side. Okay, so maybe we could elaborate a bit more on the use of work on nitrogen pollution. So this comes from fertilization, presumably, and... Okay. We're using too much nitrogen. That's the that's the key message, I presume. <laughs> yeah. So currently, globally, only about half of the nitrogen that is applied to global crop fields in terms of fertilizer, manure, etc., um, is taken up by the plants, and the other half is going into either into the groundwater in the form of nitrate, right. um, or it's going into the air in the form of ammonia, or it's going into the atmosphere in the form of uh, nitrous oxide, right. and um, uh, thereby it's uh, water. Water pollutant, an air pollutant, and an atmospheric pollutant, um, uh, contributing to global warming, contributing to air pollution, contributing to ozone depletion, um, uh, contributing to biodiversity loss, um, along with an even further range of, of impacts. Right, and so presumably there's there needs to be better farming practices to make sure that that there's less of this leakage of nitrogen. Yeah, exactly. So we can improve the, the nitrogen uptake efficiency of, of crops. So currently we're about at 50% of the nutrients being applied, being taken up by the crops. You could probably go up to 70, 80%. But then uh, it's also very difficult to increase it even further because, well, it's still an open field. You've got the fertilizer lying around and before the crop is actually growing, taking it up, some bacteria already um, yeah, like transforming this nitrogen into other forms. Mm -hmm. And you can do something, but you will still have some residual emissions. And therefore, the other option we have is to reduce the total amount of production by eating less, consuming less, and eating less animal products in particular. And um, this then allows us to, to even further reduce the pollution. Okay, so that 
that's an interesting because not only do we get direct benefit, so we're also getting this added benefit in terms of the less pollution that comes from, from the nitrates. Yeah, and you could extend this this list of positive impacts to water, um, irrigation water, where agriculture is using 70% of uh, of human water withdrawals, mm-hmm. you can extend it to um, uh, to biodiversity loss, tropical deforestation, um, uh, ocean acidification, uh, and so on. So it's it's quite a long list. And let's say for for um, for doing things on the production side, there are usually trade-offs. So, for example, if you're if you want to uh, decrease the emissions from uh, from livestock farming, you would um, uh, intensify the production systems because you then have lower methane emissions per unit of production. Mm-hmm. But this, for example, then comes usually with higher nitrogen loads in these intensified systems and um, uh, with uh, reduced nitrogen use efficiency. Um, uh, the only thing which usually only has positive um, co-benefits is um, reduction of the total demand. So just, just going back then to the, in terms of the dietary shift, you said we have to reduce our consumption by about a half. So would that be a good benchmark then for people to think at, at the individual level, I should try and cut my meat consumption by about a half? Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, this is I would say, always up for each individual consumer to, to, uh, to some people can do more some people are very attracted by meat and to, yeah. want to do less i think it's not not so that we should say for example everybody has to be vegan or that we we have to be so so strict on that but rather everybody should consider his options where he could um, do an effort yeah. and um, uh, this is also a process which let's say uh, requires a transformation of the whole society and if everybody did does a little bit then it becomes also easier for others to shift so for example if a lot of people eating vegetarian meals at restaurants then there's more vegetarian offer which will then pursue even more people to eat vegetarian dishes in restaurants and um yeah therefore you need this kind of structural change but on the other hand it shows like the kind of the magnitude of reduction shows that it definitely has to be like a a large order of magnitude this transformation sure and in terms of the the trajectory so we want to get to net zero by 2050 at what stage does the uh does the dietary shift kick in or is 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 it a is it a continuous transition or is it is there at some stage a stepping up of, of the rate of change yeah that's a that's a good question so so far there are a few countries where you can actually observe a dietary change and and how uh, yeah, at which speed it actually takes place um you can see, for example, rather dramatic shifts, but in the opposite direction in China, where people increased within 20 years their meat consumption tremendously. Um, I could imagine also that in, in the opposite direction, there could be some, let's say, tipping points where, similar to smoking, if a whole group s- reduces or stops smoking, then uh, the remaining people also have a much higher incentive to shift. Mm. Um, so I guess it's a, not a linear trend, but um, 
Yeah, on the other hand, um, it's it's um, currently I think the whole vegetarianism, veganism is still a very still a very niche market, and oh. the question w whether when it may become mainstream is a is a crucial one. Sure. So it's even in Germany, I think just a few percentage of the the consumers which are like below ten percent. Yeah, no, th that is the case, and I think a lot of we see a lot of substitutes it's a it's like any market or shift if there's more substitutes then people are more inclined it makes it easier for people to shift and then and this also touches an interesting point which is i mean the consumer preferences shift slower but technical solutions can be very rapid mm -hmm. sometimes and this probably holds true for what I'm expecting and what actually also a lot of other agricultural economists are expecting mm -hmm. at the moment, that there will be a rapid decline of of uh, conventional meat production, which is caused by the substitution through through plant-based substitutes. Mm -hmm. So be it, for example, soy milk, which already has really high shares of the market, mm -hmm. um, uh, be it for... Um, uh, Yeah, new new types of meat replacement products, mm -hmm. uh, where you can see already now that all the big producers like uh, Nestle, Unilever, new startups from the Silicon Valley, as well as old meat producers like Tyson in the US, mm -hmm. they are now uh, jumping on this new market segment because mm -hmm. they know or they expect that it which will be much more profitable because you, it's more efficient than, than uh, livestock production mm -hmm. and where actually, yeah, you, could, you can expect that the, the market really uh, tips at one point yeah. that, that almost everything will be produced with the cheaper substitute. So that was interesting, you said it's more efficient, is it in the sense that it's easier to manage crops than, than livestock? Well, at, for, for um, uh, livestock, you at least need three two to three units of protein to produce one unit of of animal protein sure. okay. so for example the most efficient is chicken i think they're yeah. the most efficient companies transformed i think like two and a half uh, kilos of um of um, uh, plant protein into animal protein mm -hmm. and if if you're you're producing it on a vegetable basis you can almost have a i guess a one-to-one -one transformation the other yeah, the, the downside to it i would say is that these these uh, replacement products are not necessarily or yeah not necessarily healthier than animal products and yeah. uh, for the question of nutrition we would actually much more like to see a shift towards fruits vegetables nuts and whole grain which yeah. is however not what you get at the veggie at the veggie burger at okay, McDonald's. that's an interesting trade-off actually um and I, we think about these things from from a i suppose a developed world perspective but is there a difference between different countries and different different areas like for example less developed regions is there more of a burden on, on us in the developed world to shift or is the change uniform at a global level yeah i mean the the high consumption of animal products is not something that is unique to high income countries but it's also there in middle income countries mm -hmm. like china even uh, even lower middle income countries have already meat consumption which are above the dietary um, uh, suggestions mm -hmm. and um, i would also say for low income countries 
given now that the pathway that that they can see from the rich countries they should probably choose a different development pathway which which does not lead towards repeating the same mistake as we did building up a very um, yeah, resource intensive livestock industry. Mm-hmm. Instead, rather, they should focus on, on horticulture, I guess, which has a similar value added as, as um, livestock production, yeah. but is um, more healthy and more sustainable. Okay, so it's a bit like in energy, people talk about developing countries skipping the fossil fuel stage and going straight to the renewable stage. This is similar in, in terms of diet. This would be nice if, if it ha- would happen, yeah. Now, one thing just before we move on, um, a lot of people here will will agree with a lot of the whole climate argument. A lot of people might say, well, they might be sceptical. So one thing just to clarify, when it comes to all these sort of climate models and climate impacts and the estimations around that, they're quite robust. There's a lot of, of, of modeling work that goes on to try and estimate what these are the, the boundaries in, in this case. Yeah, so, I mean, in terms of robustness, I would say, um, uh, it's pretty robust that uh, reducing meat consumption will strongly reduce environmental impacts. I think that's that's pretty clear, and um, uh, I've not seen any any other study yet, and there are quite a few out there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in terms of thresholds, uh, environmental thresholds, of course, there it's it's more also like. A, um, uh, yeah, a, a debate of preferences, right? Yeah. So some people may say, I don't value high biodiversity. I don't care if there are just a few uh, plants out there. Yeah. Um, uh, people may also have a different time preference or, or mm. um, uh, have a different standard on, on, on justice, international justice as well. Um, so here we we go more into a debatable question. Okay, okay. No, that's no. It's good to just yeah touch on that, and I might put up a link to some papers because some people might be interested in in discussing that a bit more. Um, so for the final few minutes, one thing I'm just interested in thinking about is well, these are the we set up. Well, this is what we need to do. This is what needs what changes need to happen and the next question then is well how do we get there and if you put on the economist hat and try and say well how do we structure markets to try and facilitate this we can think about it in an ideal situation or we can think about it well given the current political situation and these sort of political constraints that, that might exist in my mind the perfect scenario would be well we we have a global market for for greenhouse gases like methane and things like that and then we we price in the methane and we reduce we reduce our consumption at the areas where, where, where it's least efficient and that would guide us towards the reductions that are best the best outcome. Would that would, that, would you agree or would you think there might be a better way? Yeah, I mean this is um, yeah. So let's start with the with taxation or or pricing. So it's definitely necessary to to have a price on the on the pollutants. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the problem in agriculture is that you cannot directly measure them. So um, you cannot uh, measure the methane that a cow farts. Sure. Or, yeah. Or burps. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. um, uh, so the only thing is you can estimate it indirectly by the amount of feed it consumes. Uh, and of course, it's also very unclear what how much grass a cow eats on the pasture. 
So if it's not purchased food, but grazed food, it's also very difficult. Mm -hmm. So then the only option you have is to estimate the methane emissions based on the, the, the weight of the cow and maybe the milk it produces. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, which makes it a, a bit less efficient instrument than usually, but but um, um, it clearly still works. Um, uh, for nitrogen, the most efficient way would be to build a nitrogen budget on uh, on farm level or on plot level, mm -hmm. where you basically look at how much fertilizer a farmer purchases mm -hmm. or manure or how much biological fixation happens on his farm. Mm -hmm. And you subtract from that all the nitrogen that leaves his, his farm in the form of animal or plant products okay. or in the form of manure to another farm. Yeah. And the difference between those, what goes in and what comes out, is basically the, the amount of nitrogen that that probably left his his uh, his farm in forms of emissions, right. and you can nicely tax that, even though you don't know which form of emission it is, because it could be either ammonium nitrate, nitrous oxide, or denitrified two N two. So, uh, however, I think this is a as as easy as it can be. The other thing is you also don't want you want to avoid excessive administration loads for the farmers. Yeah. Yeah. So these are things that you can easily, um, well, um, uh, yeah, f you you basically find out. Or in Europe, all of these parameters are actually already something that farmers have to report. Yeah. Um, uh, so you actually want to have a whole portfolio on the demand side, additional to the to the carbon okay. or tax. Okay. So, so uh, yeah. you might want to go for education. You might go for advertisement bans for mm -hmm. unhealthy products. You might want to go for um, uh, school meals and health, healthy school meals and uh, good offers at cafeterias. Mm -hmm. There you can also use a lot of strategies from behavioral economics like nudging. Another thing is you could, if you would include the, the um, health impacts that um, uh, unhealthy diets have on, on private health, but also kind of on public um, uh, health expenditure costs, sure. then probably the prices for products would, would look even more different because then uh, these externalities are extremely high if yeah. you value them with the costs of life. Sure. Well, that, that, that sort of touches on things like we, sugar taxes and these sort of, these sort of taxes that, that are bad for your health. And th yeah, there could be an argument in that context for, for I suppose, high fatty foods or whatever. Okay, so then... There's a lot of discussion about, well, okay, we need to reduce our, our consumption, but consumption is not necessarily tied to production. And if we, uh, if we reduce our, our, our general consumption, if everybody in Europe reduces their consumption, it doesn't necessarily mean that the production is reduced evenly. And there's, there's a lot of pushback when it comes to um, reducing consumption of meat because it means reducing production of meat and a lot of meat being produced in Ireland. But it doesn't necessarily have to be the case in the sense that if there's a residual amount of meat and if we have some sort of market that the, pro the emissions comes true in the pricing, well, that would guide production towards where it's most efficient. And a lot of reports would suggest that that would be places like Ireland. So I suppose the argument here is that uh, Irish agriculture perhaps could embrace <laughs> climate change in this context. Yeah. yeah, or mitigation in this context, I guess. Yeah. Sure. So, yeah. Um, yeah, of course. The question is, with um, yeah, how would Irish how Irish competitiveness change? 
I mean, German competitiveness would actually be reduced because we have a, a severe problem with nitrogen pollution okay. and in particular in our livestock rearing regions, which is um, uh, close to the Netherlands. We have a big nitrogen surplus. Yeah. And um, uh, so uh, actually a German, uh, a German livestock production w would probably need to be reduced more than the Irish one. On the other hand, we are producing pig and not ruminants usually yeah. so they, they are not so taxed because they don't have uh, methane they would be rather taxed by the nitrogen surplus they have okay um uh, and then uh, for for ireland i mean also the the pastures are actually heavily fertilized in in, so uh, could in become, ireland there could be an issue with nitrogen there i'm not familiar it's, not, it's, so it's less of an issue than in germany sure um uh, but but it's also also there you think 90% of the fertilizers in in Ireland are applied to to pasture land mm -hmm. and from by biodiversity perspective you also rather want to have nutrient poor um, pastures because they are more rich in flowers and so on yeah. so uh, if you want to have more flowers in Ireland then you should uh, reduce your livestock consumption and your livestock production there yeah. um, if you actually take into account all the environmental externalities of, of uh, livestock production the costs which are often also very local in terms of nitrogen pollution always outweigh the benefits of the agricultural production mm -hmm. so if you value uh, like a biodiversity rich neighborhood mm -hmm. then you also might want to have less animals on the pastures so finally some common arguments that would suggest, that would maybe counteract a lot of the drive towards reducing our consumption and maybe alternative ways to reduce the emissions when it comes to agriculture maybe we could just go through some of them um, so a lot of work and a lot of discussions about reducing the amount of emissions per animal. I suppose the question here is, will that solve the problem? I mean, for Ireland, the big thing is that um, ruminants are by definition much less efficient than monogastrics. Um, uh, I mean, they have the advantage that they can eat grass. But apart from that, they are terribly in, ineffective and they're a bit like... Uh, digester plants without lid so constantly putting out methane emissions yeah. um, uh, so whatever whatever there is you have to go get rid of the ruminants <laughs> also from a health perspective again red meat is is uh, slightly hard carcinogenic yeah. so also from that perspective you would actually rather want to eat other products so now you can think what else could you do with your nice pasture lands? Um, you could, for example, also mow them and put them into a bio biogas digester. Mm. Um, uh, you could definitely have less animals on them and stop fertilizing them. Mm. Uh, so there, there, there are various options. Okay. And, and um, uh, I mean, of course, there's also the option to... to um, uh, better uh, nourish them or something like that, but that usually would would only be much easier possible in in highly intensive systems so in stables than actually out on the pastures sure. so if you for example in modern dairy plants they measure the, the nutrient content of the of the animal and the feed and then change the amino acid composition of the feed to improve the like the dietary quality 
Um, uh, but that, as I said, works much better in 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 industrial systems. Sure, and yeah, we actually touched on some of these already. So, in cases of a lot of these climate smart smart agriculture technologies, I suppose these are needed to help manage nitrogen, especially, and also the, we have issues like um, offsetting greenhouse gases through other agriculture, like other types of land use and forestry and and and, and sinks, especially, but. Would would the issue here be that these are complements that we need to do anyway? They're not, or would they be substitutes for reducing livestock production? No, I I think they would not be um, substitute substitutes. They would be substitutes for producing livestock yeah, yeah. in the first hand. So if you want to go for, for example, biogas from pastures, then you would do that instead of the animals, I guess. Okay. Okay, Benny, I think that's pretty much everything. So thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thank you very much as well. So this is the last episode of the first series and I should really offer a few acknowledgements before I wrap everything up. So thanks to everyone for all the good wishes and all the emails and social media messages of encouragement from students, colleagues, friends and those who have a general interest in learning a bit more. Uh, thanks is due to our speakers who made it interesting in the first place. The podcast was an unknown quantity for many, especially those who featured in the first few episodes. So it was a bit of a leap of faith for many who got behind it at that stage. So I hope we were able to deliver on the faith that was shown. Thanks everyone for listening and spreading the word. There has been continued support over the last few weeks and that really means a lot. I have plans for a second series sometime in the new year. So please spread the word to family and friends so they can catch up in the meantime. If you haven't shouted it out from the Twitter rooftops just yet, please do because it always helps to bring in new fans. Thanks to all the family and friends who have offered great support and guidance and had to put up with many weekends of me being holed up trying to figure out how to use the editing software. So I'm looking forward to having a few weekends back for a while. Finally, make sure to check out Connor Plunkett's SoundCloud. Connor helped me rejig his track Goodbye for the theme tune. Connor is an accomplished musician and has been in some award-winning bands throughout the years. He goes by Late Track on SoundCloud and there's a link to his music on the podcast website. So I think that's it. If you made it this far in the messages, well done and hopefully we'll talk again soon. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. 
quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.